As a mother, wife, and divorce attorney for over 15 years, experience has taught me a lot about how to deal with times of uncertainty, transition, and facing opportunities for growth. I'm happy you're joining me for this part of the journey. Odds are pretty good. There's somebody in your life who loves to create conflict. You may find yourselves walking around eggshells when you're near this person and their mood may change in an instant. They are masters at blaming other people and rarely accept responsibility for anything that's gone wrong. If you're married to somebody like this and thinking about a divorce, or you just deal with somebody like this in other aspects of your life, whether that's on the job or extended family, you're not gonna wanna miss our session today. I'm talking with Bill Eddy. Bill Eddy is a licensed clinical social worker. He's also a lawyer, but he's known and respected for pioneering the high conflict personality theory. He's written lots of books to help us better communicate and manage those high conflict relationships in our lives. And some of my favorite books are Splitting, Protecting Yourself While Divorcing Somebody uh, Who is a High Conflict Person, or It's All Your Fault, uh, 12 Tips for Managing People Who Blame Others. And one other favorite of my books, which we'll be talking about today, is Dating Radar. So how to detect these people in your life. Bill, it is such an honor for me to get to have you here to talk with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I'm glad to be on. I want to start off by just talking about what is a high-conflict personality? How do we define that? Well, we've really narrowed it down to four things. And the four things are, first, a preoccupation with blaming others. And this is often very dramatic is someone that's just constantly talking about other people's behavior. And with that comes not taking responsibility, as you mentioned in the introduction, not taking responsibility themselves. So the proportion that they blame others is the opposite of the proportion they take responsibility. So that stands out and that's probably the biggest factor. But they also have a lot of all or nothing thinking. And so they see things in all good and all bad terms. So if something's not good, it's terrible. And if something, you know, they've done that's kind of minor, they make it, oh, you know, I'm incredible. You know, look at me, look at what I've done. So they're all or nothing thinking, but solutions too. So like you might think of a custody dispute in a divorce, and someone says, well, I'm the best parent in the world and you should just leave town. And that kind of all or nothing thinking. Then they often, but not always have unmanaged emotions where they'll just in the middle of a discussion, start yelling or storm out of a room or burst into tears. That's way out of proportion to the situation. Although some people don't show that on the outside, it's still going on on the inside. And lastly is extreme behavior. So they sometimes do things 90% of people would never do, but they have an excuse. And so you go, oh, oh, okay, he was tired. That's why he punched a hole in the wall. Or that's why he sent an email to 100 people trashing me, uh, things like that. So it's this blaming others, all or nothing thinking, unmanaged emotions and extreme behavior. 
It seems like we live in a culture that's sort of obsessed with labels. So we hear a lot about narcissists or maybe borderlines or some of the other personality um, diagnoses. Can you help us distinguish between what is a psychological disorder versus understanding, you know, these patterns of behavior? Yeah. So what I just described, high conflict personality is a pattern of behavior, blaming a lot. When personality disorder is diagnosed by a mental health professional and only should be by a mental health professional, um, for example, narcissistic personality disorder, it's when the person is really stuck. They're in a narrow range of behavior. It doesn't work real well and they repeat and repeat and repeat it in many different settings. So the definition of a personality disorder is basically an enduring pattern of dysfunctional behavior, mostly interpersonal behavior. So it's someone who's stuck. Now, not all people with a personality disorder are high conflict people because they don't all blame somebody else in particular, but they usually feel helpless, vulnerable, weak, like a victim in life and just don't know why things happen. They don't connect the dots. So think of someone with a personality disorder as someone who doesn't connect the dots from their behavior to their life circumstances. Someone with a high conflict personality doesn't connect the dots from their behavior to the specific person they blame for everything. Um, but so personality disorders, just think of them as people who are stuck. Narcissistic personalities are stuck being self-centered, disdainful of others, a drive for unlimited uh, money, glory, uh, power, uh, beauty, all of that. The other personality disorders are stuck in their own special ways. Uh, five of the personality disorders stand out as high conflict most, much of the time, and that's narcissistic, borderline, histrionic, antisocial, and paranoid. So that's a real brief nutshell. <laughs> that is great. And I think it is helpful because what we really focus on, especially in the family law context, are the patterns of behavior. The diagnoses may, may give us some insight into why those patterns are, are happening, but they don't really tell us what to do about them. And what I love about your work is you've given some really good tools and skills for how to deal with people who are high conflict personalities. I want to talk for just a minute about the person who is in a high conflict relationship. What are some common things that they may be experiencing in trying to, you know, have a relationship with this person? Well, part of the problem and most common is that they're getting blamed unfairly for <laughs> things. And that's that preoccupation with blaming others. So they may have done something minor or not at all and the other person's just outraged with them for why did you tell so-and-so such and such? And it may have been a really minor thing, it may be distorted, it may not have even happened. So you, you start feeling like, like I'm the target of blame, that's what we call that. Um, but also you're, you're being barraged with these intense emotions typically, and that's hard to, to sustain. Human beings really are very sensitive to each other's emotions, and so the intense emotions constantly uh, really kind of fry your brain a bit, 
and, and make you really want to get away or fight with the person, which isn't the way to solve the problem. Um, but there's also what people call gaslighting, where that person makes you think you're crazy. They say, I didn't do that thing that they did that you saw with your own eyes. Um, they want you to deny the world that you see. And they often tie that with the blame. And it's like, well, I didn't do that. And why are you blaming me anyway? So it's, it's what some people end up calling walking on eggshells. It's very interesting. And I know a lot of people who, um, you know, come to me after they've been in a relationship for so long, one of the, the biggest struggles they have is just learning to trust themselves again, because, you know, so much has been eroded over the course of that relationship. Yeah, what, what happens is your self-esteem just goes down and down when you have somebody trying to tell you that the world isn't the way you see the world. And so your doubt goes up. Part of the problem is, let's say 80 to 90% of people, when there's a problem, they ask themselves two questions. They first say, what's my part in this problem? And that's a very healthy human thing to do. And the second is, what can I do differently next time? Those are two very healthy things. Well, people with personality disorders can't ask themselves those two questions. In fact, I wrote a blog for Psychology Today on, do you have a personality disorder? Here's a quick way to find out. If you can ask yourself, what's my part in this problem? And what can I do different? You don't have an enduring pattern that doesn't change. So, but, but that beaten down feeling is really uh, sad. And of course, it's really hard when you've got kids involved. Um, and they see one of their parents getting kind of beaten down, either emotionally, sometimes physically by the other parent. You know, I often say that, you know, just from what I've observed and from other mental health professionals, the the fact that um, there's conflict isn't isn't necessarily what's damaging for the kids. It's the pattern of seeing unresolved conflict over the years. I'm just wondering what impact being in a high conflict relationship has on children. Well, it, it's really, there's, there's many factors involved. How severe the conflict is, whether there's violence in the conflict or not. So high conflict without violence isn't as bad as high conflict with violence. Um, but also depends how resilient, just kind of inborn traits of the child, how resilient they are, and also the support systems for the child. So, you know, what's interesting is, let's say you have several children, three, four children, um, the child does better generally because there's other kids going through the same experience. Whereas if it's just one child and they're with just two upset parents a lot of the time, um, where do they turn? Now, sometimes, you know, grandma or granddad or Uncle Joe and Aunt Mary are a good source of support and the child has someone to talk to that helps them feel like, hey, this isn't what the world is everywhere. Um, but, but for kids that don't, um, they, they do suffer. And uh, some research I've seen says the worst thing for kids is hostility and unpredictability from parents. And it really, um, 
can add up and high conflict parents display a lot of hostility and they're emotionally unpredictable. So it can lead to mental health problems, depression, anxiety, et cetera, uh, for kids. Uh, one of the things that I um, wasn't really aware of, I hadn't spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about it because I didn't grow up in a home with a lot of conflict, but it's the fact that when it comes to these personality disorders and high conflict personalities, there's not a medication to cure the problem. So how do, I mean, if somebody, do, do high conflict personalities change over time? Can they be motivated to change? And what does that change look like? It's really, think of it as a continuum. So for example, there's some high conflict people who don't have personality disorders. So they're not quite as stuck. And so, and they may have a little bit of insight even though they think everything's other people's fault, they may have some room for insight. So that's why I think it's always worth trying to have some kind of change activity. That's why, you know, counseling's a good idea, but high conflict people don't seek counseling and personality disorder people don't seek counseling because they don't think they have a problem. Uh, we developed a method called New Ways for Families, which teaches some very simple but powerful skills to both parents and in a divorce or separation situation. And then they teach these skills to their kids. And we find they can learn some skills, take the edge off uh, high conflict emotions that they can learn to write emails and text more respectfully, uh, learn to manage their emotions a little bit more, uh, learn to make proposals instead of making demands and actually negotiate agreements. So they can learn skills, but to really change a personality, um, you need like two to five years of therapy um, in the best cases. And some personalities just aren't gonna change. I want to shift to talk about some of those skills because as a practitioner, as somebody who lives and works in the high conflict arena, <laughs> um, sometimes it's, you know, it can be the opposing party, uh, it can be opposing counsel, it could be, you know, the clients that I'm working with. Um, you have developed some skills that are so helpful for, you know, dealing with those high conflict situations, especially when it comes to communication. And one of those that I, I teach my clients is the BIF response. Can you kind of go over the what the BIF response is and, and when to use it? Yeah, BIF is great because it's really simple. It's brief, informative, friendly, and firm. And we developed it as a method for responding to hostile emails. <laughs> And so, and, and I was asked by some judges to say, what can we do to get people to stop writing these awful emails? And I said, well, they need to be brief because brief doesn't get them into as much trouble. Most problems can be solved and addressed in a paragraph. So three to five sentences in most cases. Informative, just focusing on straight information, not emotions, not, uh, defenses, not accusations, all of that, just straight information, you know, what time something happens, etc. Um, and then friendly, that there's a friendly tone. Thank you for responding to my request. Um, if it's Friday afternoon, say, you know, have a good weekend. 
so that keeps it on the positive and it's firm. In other words, it ends the hostile conversation, it doesn't have any hooks to pull the person back in, like saying, so what do you think of that, buddy? You don't want to do that. So brief and formative, friendly and firm. And it's amazingly simple to do, but sometimes things slip in there. So it's always good to have somebody else look at it if you can. Um, but that's in a nutshell. And of course, you may know by now we have three books on Biff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and your website has a lot of resources too, uh, to go and look at different examples of Biff communication and what that looks like. What I found really interesting is that, you know, when, when an accusatory email is sent, or it could be a text message or, or an in-person communication, right? It is natural to feel that defensive response. But the minute you respond with trying to defend yourself or, you know, arguing with the other person or trying to show them how they're wrong, you've just gotten hooked into that dance and now it escalates. And, and the Biff response is such a good way for unplugging. It's, it is empowering in that you're saying, I'm not, I'm not going to get involved in this dance. Thanks for inviting me on the dance floor. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But it is, it's a very powerful tool. One thing I want to mention with that is to remind yourself that when somebody just dumps on you, that's not problem solving. That's more about them and their inability to restrain themselves than it is about you. So I think it helps to memorize some short phrases like that's not about me mm -hmm. or the issue's not the issue. It's going on, it's their stuff. It's stuff inside of them and I don't have to take it on. Another thing though, is if someone has a high conflict personality pattern is that you're, you're gonna feel pulled in emotionally and to just be able to tell yourself, you know, it's not about me, it's about them. And that it's just gonna happen from time to time. And so, you know, if, if I defend myself, I reinforce their emotional belief that I've done something wrong. If I can avoid that and just stay information focused, friendly, calm, um, I don't reinforce that because high conflict people want to bring you down to their emotional level and you don't want to go there. No, but it's easy for the unwary. So if you're if you're not, if you really haven't paid attention to this and you find yourself getting embroiled in these arguments, this, you know, this is such a, a great tool. Um, I think I learned from you to avoid the, I think is, is it the three A's, arguing, admonishing, advising? Do I have that right? Something like that? Almost, <laughs> almost. So it's advice, admonishments, and apologies. And so what we find is it's tempting to want to give advice to someone who's criticizing us. Like, let me give you some advice, buddy. And you don't want to go there because it just feeds the hostility, feeds the conflict. Admonishments are talking down to the person like they're a child. Like, you know, you should remember not to do and it's like, you know, that triggers people. But also what's confusing is apologies. And when you apologize to a high conflict person, remember they have a lot of all or nothing thinking. So you apologize for something small. What they hear is it's all your fault and you agree. 
So we discourage having apologies and BIF responses. Uh, there may be a time and place and a structure for an apology, but most of the time, apologies solve things well for reasonable people. <laughs> so I don't, don't say that apology is the problem. It's high conflict people. Because I've seen, I've had cases, I had a mediation where a guy pulls out a crumpled up letter and you could tell that, that his wife had tried to calm him down by saying, I'm sorry I don't clean better, or I'm sorry I don't cook better, or something like that. He said, remember that you took responsibility because it is all your fault. And it's like, don't walk into that by using apologies in a BIF response. That is, I call it apology quicksand. Exactly. And it is so interesting because it seems like, well, if I just give the apology, it'll, you know, we'll be able to move on. But it doesn't. You're exactly right. It is. The quicksand is a great analogy. Um, I want to talk about the ear response. So can you kind of go over what, what the ear response is and how and when we should use that? Yeah, this is another really fairly simple tool, but very important. And EAR stands for empathy, attention, and respect. And so we've been teaching EAR statements now for about 15 years. And we started teaching them to professionals saying, you know, your client's upset, give them an EAR statement and show some empathy, like, you know, I, I can see how frustrating this is, and I really want to help you. Um, pay attention, you know, uh, I'll pay attention to your concerns. Take your time, I'm listening. And respect, you know, I really respect your commitment to your kids, your, your record keeping, thanks for bringing in all these records. Um, respect for something else that they do. But then we found that really can teach this to clients too, um, unless they're in a dangerous situation, like a domestic violence situation, where they should not feel they have to calm down someone who's trying to hit them. It's better for them to figure out just how to get out of the situation. But in general, and in most cases, um, co-parents can use this. They can say, oh, I can see how frustrating that was. Or, you know, you can explain, um, I, was, I was 10 minutes late because of such and such, and here's how I'll avoid having that happen in the future, because I, I care about your relationship with our daughter, and I want to, you know, not get in the way of that. Um, or, I can see you're really upset with me about something. Can you tell me more so I can understand it? Um, and I respect your time with our daughter and I respect um, your efforts to negotiate on this. And I, I respect this, that, and the other thing about you and co-parents can use that too. What is um, so interesting to me is that with both the Biff and the ear and just, you know, the materials that you teach, which you're, you're really taking what is a, you know, kind of a fight or flight, I think, moment um, and helping, you know, engage the other part of the brain. So I'd love to know kind of neurologically what is what's happening? Why does this stuff work? Well, since uh, your podcast includes video for some of the observers, I'll hold up my extra brain and talk about why this seems to work. 
So it seems as though our brain has two generally different responses to conflict. One is the, let's see, this brain's looking at me. So this is the left hemisphere. There's problem solving, talking, reading, writing, talking, listening, um, looking for solutions, looking at various options, all of that, calmly solving problems. Um, the right brain seems to have a big picture view and is more concerned about our survival uh, in our environment and is paying attention to tone of voice. Is this person safe or dangerous? And the brain, right brain, seems to pick that up through uh, nonverbal behavior, like hand gestures, facial expressions, and tone of voice. And so what happens is with, with when people are real upset, they can't think logically. You give them an ear statement and that calms the right brain so that now they can get into problem solving. When you do a BIF response, you're keeping it from escalating uh, the other person. So in my mind, this is not exact neuroscience, but the general idea is that if you calm the right brain, then you can move to problem solving with the left brain. And that's why information in a BIF response is so important. It keeps it left brain problem solving focused, which keeps it calmer. And by the way, parents being upset and angry a lot makes it hard for a child to shift from right brain defensiveness, I got to protect myself from my angry parents to, hey, I can think about problem solving. So it's interesting, the neuroscience does really support these types of techniques, although we learned it after we learned the techniques. So uh, it's very interesting. It is. And again, I, I come back to the word, it's empowering when you can kind of get a, get a hold of your brain, get a hold of your thinking and your problem solving skills and not let it be hijacked by, you know, somebody else's emotional response. It's very helpful. Um, you know, I, I love your book, Dating Radar, when your brain says yes to the one who will make your life hell. I think this is such a great book and I'm giving it out to all the graduating high school seniors in my life because I think they need it. I hope they'll take it and um, read it in their college dorm. Um, people don't come with warning signs that say high conflict personality. <laughs> uh, and so it often is not until you're, you know, further along down in the relationship journey that you begin to recognize these signs. Um, what advice do you have or what are some early warning signs that you can kind of begin to detect that this is somebody who might be prone to high conflict? Yeah, well, first of all, it isn't obvious. As you said, they don't come with warning signs. And, and I want to give credit to my co-author, Megan Hunter, uh, the beginning of the book, she she put that in, and I, I like that. Uh, but they, they don't come with warning signs. And so the first thing we tell people is take your time, uh, keep your eyes open. We tell people don't make a big commitment, um, like getting married for a year. Get to know somebody, because a lot of the high conflict behaviors, they cover up the first few months. Um, but usually between about six and nine months, you start seeing this, things like domestic violence, um, 
demeaning behavior, yelling, uh, criticizing, etc. When we did that book, we actually did a survey, an online survey, got about 300 responses. And what we were told is that the worst behavior came out after they made a big commitment, like getting engaged to get married or buying a house together um, or having a child. So you want to give yourself time. Now, what to look for? Look for those characteristics I described at the beginning. Do they do a lot of blaming? Even if it's of other people, keep in mind that someday that may turn against you. Do they tend to have all or nothing thinking? Uh, like they're watching a TV show and they'll say, oh, that guy doesn't deserve to live. You know, that kind of lack of empathy, extreme thinking is raises a red flag. And you want to kind of see, is this a pattern or was this just an isolated uh, thing? How do they manage their emotions? Do they yell and scream and throw things? What happens is people mostly miss the warning signs because of wishful thinking, but also because they accept the excuse. Um, I, I had someone in my law office at one point, went on the first date, and she said something, and he said, that's stupid, and he slapped her on her butt. And she said, what's that about? And he said, oh, that's nothing. And she decided then and there, I'm not going out with this guy again, because he'd been working in my office and knew about this stuff. Um, that's a warning sign. And, and people try to distract you from the warning sign. So watch out for distraction. We call it jamming your radar. <laughs> um, so this is just a few things. But the other is not being in a vulnerable place and looking to someone to make you heal from like another relationship loss or something that you, you've got to be strong in yourself so that you're getting together with someone with eyes open. Of course, you have, um, you have written the books, the books that I hand out to people who are contemplating ending a marriage uh, or ending a relationship with somebody who's high conflict. And I would just like to hear from you, Bill, what are some um, tips or advice that you give to somebody who might right now be you know, in that high conflict relationship and they're worried about ending that relationship, about the impact it might have on their children? Um, you know, what should they what should they be thinking about and and what kind of information should they be gathering? Well, the, the first thing I want to say is they should read the beginning of the splitting book that you held up at the beginning of this, because we talk about that, uh, how to get ready. Um, and even before you say you want to separate or get divorced while you're still living together, um, it really helps to gather information. Uh, sometimes bank accounts disappear after uh, people make these announcements. Announcements. So some people want to make sure to copy at least account numbers and know know where things are. Maybe even bank statements, uh, things like that. Um, I had a case where, unfortunately, it was necessary for my client to take photographs of the furniture in each room in the house um, because after they separated um, there was a dispute over the value of household furniture because uh, 
he was the husband in that case. And I represented clients about equally husbands and wives. And in this case, uh, his wife was going to keep the house and, and they had some good furniture. He wanted to get his share of the value. So they had a, a furniture appraisal. They had a home appraiser walk through the house, say what things are worth. And there was several pieces of furniture missing. <laughs> and he had photos of that. Um, and so the appraiser said, well, I can't, can't appraise a photo. Um, but the judge was able to uh, estimate some values <laughs> for those uh, photographs because furniture had been removed. So, you know, a lot of cases, your partner or spouse is not going to be that sneaky. But there are some cases where they are, and um, that's often the, the high conflict cases. Yeah, and I just um, I'm so appreciative of the work that you've done. I think you are really providing good and valuable information to people who are in a really vulnerable place. Because if you've been in a relationship with a high conflict person, um, you've endured probably a long period of time of you know having your own instincts questioned and your own opinions and your own feelings invalidated. So um, your work is amazing, Bill. We're going to provide a link to uh, your website and um, and. And I would encourage, I know you have a new book. I want you to talk about that real quick. Talk about the new book you have coming out this summer. Uh, well, there's two things coming out this summer, actually. One is mediating high conflict disputes, which is geared more to professionals, but anybody can read it. And it's about some shifts in that. But in July, we're going to have the uh, splitting book, second edition coming out and included in that is more information about how to present your case, how to talk about personality patterns without diagnosing somebody. Because most times someone hasn't had a diagnosis, even if they, they could, they haven't. And the courts don't like hearing people present that information. Um, so instead we talk about patterns and how to talk about the patterns that are concerning in the case. So that's the, uh, the two books that are coming out this summer. Um, but they're, every, they're on Amazon, they're also through our website. So, um, and there's a lot of other books. There's Don't Alienate the Kids related to the alienation issue in divorce um, and Biff for co-parents, uh, specifically 28 examples for communicating, calming the communication. So we really try to give, as you said, techniques and skills um, and reassurance to people. You know, I just, um, before we end today, I, w I wanted to talk a little bit about process because I think your experience um, has shown this and certainly mine has too, is that the courtroom can be kind of the perfect staging ground for somebody with high conflict personality tendencies. Um, they tend to love the chaos and the drama. Uh, I'm just wondering what you've seen in terms of alternative dispute resolution methods being effective for families who are dealing with high conflict. Very much so. I really tell people you want to try to stay out of court if you can. You really want to resolve your case out of court if you can. So use of mediation, use of collaborative divorce, uh, negotiation, um, consultation, you know, get, get lawyer, therapists, people who can 
um, guide you through kind of the minefield. Uh, because once you get in court, high conflict people, remember enduring narrow range of behavior? Well, that just really gets enduring in, in family court. One of the things I found as a lawyer, therapist, mediator, is when I was a lawyer in court and we were dealing with uh, parenting issues that it was hard for the parents to communicate by the end of the court process, which sometimes was one or two or three years. Whereas in the out-of-court methods, mediation, collaborative, divorce, um, parents were not only able to communicate, but usually able to communicate better because of going through that experience. I've had clients say, I wish I had these skills 10 years ago. Um, things would have been a lot easier. Maybe we still would have gone separate ways, but there would have been a lot less conflict and hostility. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is beneficial for the whole family. And, the, you know, if you choose a process where you have the opportunity to really use use these resources and practice them, it just makes for a much better life post-divorce than, you know, having to have ongoing litigation for the rest of your children's, you know, mm. childhood. So I think your work is amazing and I'm so appreciative of, of what you've done. And so we will include links to all of that below. And um, just thank you for your time today. Well, thank you, Jennifer, and thank you for the work you're doing, because I think you're helping many people as well. So it's all, all together. That's the key. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that's all for today. Thanks. <laughs>